Um, we want to begin our series here by talking about being saved by God. So we begin with this great truth because it's foundational for our understanding of the Christian faith and it also has significant implications. Um, it also has significant implications for how we live as Christians and how we view the world. So being saved is, is very important. It's not something that we just do at one time and then we kind of forget about all that. We, we need to constantly and, and regularly go back to uh, what it means to, to be saved by God. So if you're a Christian here this morning, then you have come to that realization that God is holy and that He demands punishment for sin and that, that you have to accept the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And at some level, you recognize that salvation has to come, it can only come, by God's grace. By, by God's grace. But as Christians, what, is, what it is that God has done for us in salvation, how He's done it, and why He's done it, are truths, truths that will challenge us for the remainder of our lives. And so, this idea, you have it there um, on your handout, why take another look at salvation? Um, and the answer is that we can never exhaust the mystery and the wonder of the Gospel. So you might be thinking, well, you know, it seems like this came up in the last class, in the, class, in the last series, the series before that, just constantly being reminded about the Gospel. And here's the reason why. Is that we can never really exhaust all that, that there is in the Gospel. And so what I want to do is, is to remind you about some things that you already know and, and hopefully by the power of the Spirit that, that you'll be encouraged by what God has done for you and what He is doing. So today we're going to do this by first discuss, discussing the bad news about us versus the good news about the Gospel. And then secondly, by looking at God's action and purpose in salvation. And then thirdly, talking about some implications of how, how we use our understanding of the Gospel to strengthen our walk as believers. So, first, the bad news about us versus the good news about the Gospel. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you read through the, the Apostle and even Jesus, often, um, whenever they talk about the Gospel, they often talk about the miracle that it is to be saved. They talk about what our life was like before we came to Christ. And, and so, before we talk about where we are and, and what this all means for us, our inheritance and all those sorts of things, the apostles often talk about where we were before we came to Christ. And I think it's important that we look at our salvation in that way as well, that we remember where we were before we, we were converted. So, let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 1-3. through 3. And here Paul describes for us um, what we were like before we came to Christ. He's talking specifically to Gentile Christians, but it applies to us as well. So what were we like before we came to Christ? Would someone read verses 1 through 3? Help me. How 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 would we how would Paul describe us before we came to Christ? First, what? Dead. Okay, dead. 
Verse 2. How might you summarize that? What was that? Okay, so you could say uh, disobedient at the end of the verse. Verse 2. How about verse 3? Okay, so we we were engaging in or... or um, We were participating in the lust of the flesh. Then what else? Okay, so we were children of wrath. All right, uh, we're going to come back here in just a second, but turn to Titus chapter 3. I want someone to read verse 3. Alright, so there's just a number of terms there that pile up. And what's... How, how would you describe us there before we came to Christ? Okay, foolish. Okay, disobedient. Anything else stick out to you? Okay. Good. Deceived. Remember, right, kind of goes along with Ephesians 3, that we were engaging in the lust of the flesh. Here it says it's actually an in uh, form of enslavement. Enslaved to the lusts and pleasures. And then we could just say uh, at war. We were at war with God and with others. We were hateful and hating one another. So, there's lots we could say about, about these. We could walk through all the different descriptions in Ephesians 3 and Titus 3. But I, want, I just want to highlight two of them this morning for our purposes. And they are enslaved and dead. Okay, so first, this one we just looked at, enslaved. Paul uses this sort of language often. He talks about it also in Romans chapter 6 where he makes the point that all humans are enslaved to one of two things. They're either slaves of sin or slaves of what? Remember? Slaves of sin or slaves of... Here's the positive one. Righteousness or slaves of Christ, right? We belong to Christ. We are His servants. We, we give ourselves to the, 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 um, the commands of our Master. And Paul says we can either do that to sin or to righteousness. And so the question before us is, what does it mean to be enslaved to sin? I mean, what are we talking about when we're, say, we're saying we're enslaved to the lust of our flesh? 
in Titus 3. John Piper in the sermon on Romans 6 summarizes what what he sees this to mean, being enslaved to sin. He says, We were all once slaves of sin. Not some of us, all of us. That is, that we were not neutral. We were not neutral, self-determining creatures standing before sin and righteousness able to make a sovereign choice. So we weren't kind of just evaluating, hmm, should I take sin or should I take righteousness? No, we were slaves to sin from the beginning. Sin was master. We were not. Our, wor- our wills were in bondage to the allurements of sin. Because of our corruption, the distortion of our values, we saw sin as more attractive than righteousness. So we were free, Paul says, in regard to righteousness. That is, we, righteousness before we came to Christ had no power to sway us. Righteousness didn't look attractive or rewarding. And so any appeals that it made were powerless because we were slaves of sin. You see, that's what life apart from Christ is like. That we are slaves in the sense that we obey the sinful nature within us. Just like a slave obeys his master. And what do we do because we're enslaved? We follow what our master has to say. We follow after our sinful nature. The second image that we see is this one that really sticks out here in Ephesians chapter 2, and that is that we are dead. We are a corpse. Paul says that in our former way of life, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So what does this mean? What does it mean that we are dead in our sins? And, And really... It's, it's a way of simply describing all that it means to be apart from Christ. If we want to describe all these other things, disobedient, following after the lust of the flesh, children of wrath, at war, enslaved, all those things could be summed up in one word, dead. That we are spiritually dead. That our will is enslaved, our spiritual mind is blinded, we are deceived, our hearts are cold and dead. We are in hostility. We are at hostility with God. So we have a huge problem here. In order for us to be made right with God, we have a huge problem because we follow after our master, our master sin, and we love our master sin. And and the only hope that we have, the only one that can save us, is outside of us, and we despise that one. We despise righteousness. We despise God and His. His mercy. Let's say you had a friend who was enslaved to a wicked master, and that wicked master only abused him. He only meant him harm. And your friend was simply deceived so that so that he doesn't even comprehend his situation, the slavery and the danger that he's in. And in, in addition to that, he's a hard hearted enemy of the only person that can give him any rescue. The only person that can liberate him from his bondage, he hates that person. And so we would describe a person like that as hopeless, right? They are enslaved, they're in danger, and the only person that can rescue them from their enslavement, they are opposed to. Maybe um, think about a wife who's abused by her husband and who keeps going back to him. Maybe she's offered help by her father, but she's had a severed relationship with her father and doesn't want to have anything to do with her father. The only one that that has any hope for her, she despises. 
That's how we were before we came to Christ. We were enslaved to our sin and the only one that could provide us hope we despised. So, why take time to talk about what we were like before Christians? I mean, if, if that's all in the past, let's just leave it in the past, right? Why, why bring it back up? And the point is that we need to understand where we came from if we want to understand, first of all, how to be saved and then why it's so valuable for us to be saved. And that leads us to the second part of our discussion this morning. And that is that salvation is a work initiated by God, accomplished by God, according to God's purposes. Okay, so first, salvation is a work that is initiated by God. Salvation is a work initiated by God. All right, let's start with Titus 3, since we're already here, and then we'll go back to Ephesians 3. But Titus 3, how does the next verse go? Would someone read verses 4 and 5? Turn back to Ephesians chapter 3 and let someone read verses... I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Say that or not. So the more that we understand our deadness, our enslavement apart from Christ, the more we will appreciate our salvation. The more that we understand that our salvation was not initiated by us. We weren't the one to take the first step towards God. God was the one who took the first step toward us. The more that we recognize our utter hopelessness apart from God, the more that we recognize that we were not sick in our trespasses and sins. The more that we recognize that we weren't mostly dead or mostly enslaved. We were all dead, completely enslaved, completely destitute, lost, unable to save ourselves. We hated God. We were hostile toward God. And our, our minds, according to Romans 8, 7, were unable to subject ourselves to the law of God. And we did not even have the ability to do so. Not that just that we didn't desire God, but we didn't even have the ability to desire God. The more that we understand those things, the more we will appreciate our salvation. So, all these ways that we were described before we came to Christ, Paul takes those and turns them on their head by, by these, this one word in both, in both places. It's a, it's a contrasting Conjunction, conjunction is the word but. Right? He says, but God. He's saying, so this is the way that we all were, but, and it, depending on your translation, but God. This is salvation. It is that, that we were lost, we were dead, but God did something. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous, a famous Welsh pe- preacher, has a sermon called The Christian Message to the World from Ephesians 2. And he 
he bases the entire sermon on these two words, but God. He says, with these two words, we come to the introduction to the Christian message, the peculiar, specific message which the Christian faith has to offer to us. These two words, but God, in of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. The gospel tells of what God has done, God's intervention. It is something that comes entirely from outside of us and displays to us that wondrous and amazing and astonishing work of God. And that's the emphasis that Paul is looking for in our salvation. That's the emphasis that we ought to think about when we think about our own salvation. But God. And so Paul reminds Christians of where they were, their enslavement, their deadness, their hopelessness. And then he turns to the fact that God was the one who initiated our salvation. That God was behind it all. Do you believe that today? God was the one who initiated your salvation. That apart from Him, you were hopeless. Salvation is a work initiated by God. Secondly, salvation is carried through to completion by God. Salvation is carried through to completion by God. So, Salvation is initiated by God, but even more than that, every stage of the process, which is what we're seeing in Colossians, from beginning to middle to end, all of it is a result of the work of God. It's easy for us, I think, to think of salvation in a very man-centered way. You know, we think about it in terms of what I did. I chose Christ. I accepted Christ. I read the Bible in order to discover these things. I'm the one who came upon these truths. I'm the one who believed. I'm the one who turned from my sin. And so it's all about me. And I think on a surface level, all those things are true, right? I mean, that is what happened. We did come to find the Scriptures to be true and we did come to turn from our sins and we did come to believe. Those things are all true on a surface level. But you see, the Scripture calls for us to think much deeper about our salvation. And that is that while all those things are true, God is working behind the scenes to accomplish all of that. That even our faith is a gift from God. That even our ability to, 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 um, to respond with repentance and faith is a gift from God, right? And we, we know that because uh, we see in the Scriptures the doctrine of regeneration. In John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Last time I checked, being born was something that happens apart from us. Right? It's not a work that we create or cause. And that's the same thing with salvation. We don't cause our salvation. We're the effect of it. God is the cause of our salvation. He's the one who births us, effectively, into Christ. Theologians call it regenerations because it's the impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Right? We can't do anything on our own. Again, Paul's image of the spiritual corpse comes in handy because before we accepted Christ, it's not as though we were kind of sick, right? And we need a little medicine of the Word coupled with some strong personal willpower. And if we can just give us a little bit of help, then, then we'll make it the rest of the way. We often think of, of our state before salvation as kind of drowning out in the middle of the ocean. We just need someone to throw us a life preserver. 
See, we, we kind of do some work by grabbing onto the life preserver. That's our faith. And we come in. But, but what Paul's saying is, no, it's nothing like that, actually. It's like you're a corpse out on the ocean, face down, and you can't affect any change in yourself. God actually has to grab you out of the ocean and, and breathe into you spiritual life. That's salvation. It's not that we kind of... He throws a rope and we kind of pull ourselves in. No, God does all the work in salvation. Now, we respond after the fact, and I'll, I'll give you an illustration of that here in just a second. But our, our view that we were only sick in our trespasses and sins tends to see God in the work of salvation as kind of like a doctor where he writes a prescription and says, here's some things, you know, that you got a few problems that are going on here in your life, and so here's... Here's my prescription for what you should do. Get some rest, change your diet, take these pills and so on, and you'll get better. But what we see in Scripture, what we know of Jesus Christ, is that that work that God did in salvation was not like a doctor to a sick person. Because if we were left to ourselves, we would remain forever in our sins. And if you match up that illustration, the doctor with the sick person, to what actually happened in the Scriptures, then basically that doctor would be giving a prescription to a corpse. You know, he's got this dead body laying on his table and he says, okay, here's what I think you need to do in order to, to get better. Gives the prescription to the dead body. What can the dead body do about that? Well, the dead body needs life. And the dead body can't give himself life. That's the point in salvation. We can't give ourselves life. Romans 3.10 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. And so our only hope of salvation is for God to do a work in us, to God to regenerate us, God to send His Holy Spirit to, to impart spiritual life to our dead and cold heart. It's the only way we can come to Christ. It's the only way we can respond with repentance and faith. And that's why I think the illustration of Lazarus when he was resurrected physically is a good and helpful um, analogy for what happens in salvation. Right? When Jesus told Lazarus a command, Lazarus could not obey that command until God first imparted life to Lazarus. Right? He said, Lazarus, come forth. And so what does a dead body do when he gets a command? Let's think about one that's not going to be raised from the dead. Okay, You're at the funeral home and you say, get up. Go make yourself some coffee. Right? What's that dead body going to do? Nothing unless life is imparted to that dead body. Right? That's the only thing that can happen. And so the point is that Lazarus cannot obey the command from Jesus until Jesus first imparts life to him. That's exactly what happens with faith and repentance. See, what we've thought is, Faith and repentance are, are how I give myself life. And what I'm telling you is that the Scriptures teach that faith and repentance are response to life. That when God says to us, repent and believe. See, that's the message that we're supposed to give to the whole world. And you know who the only ones who respond to that message are? Only the ones who have first been imparted life. Right? That's why our message must be the way that it is, that it's, it's, it's a command. On the basis of the authority we have in Jesus Christ, Jesus' sheep 
hear His voice and they know Him and, he, and they follow Him. And so He gives them life. And they actually respond with that repentance and faith. But they can't do it until they first have been imparted life. Does that make sense? So that, that gift of faith or that response of faith is really just a gift. Turn over to Romans chapter 8 because here's a helpful way to see all of our salvation from beginning to end is sourced in Christ. Sourced in God. It's a complete work of God. Our salvation from beginning to end is all about God. Verses 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So in this verse, we see a progression that any part of salvation that we can think about is all initiated by God. It's, it's God working behind the scenes to make it happen. From the choosing of us, to the calling of us, to the justifying of us, to our eventual glorification, it's all God. For whom God foreknew, right? Those whom he, those he predestined, and the ones that He predestined, He called, and the ones who He called, He. So we could, if we highlighted the word He in each one, you would see that it's God, right? Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. So it's a work of God. Maybe uh, an illustration here from. Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher. Spurgeon held firmly to this conviction that salvation is a work from God. That God initiated the work of salvation. God completed the work of salvation. Spurgeon held that very firmly. But that was not always his understanding. And here he explains how he came to understand that. He says, I can well remember the manner in which I learned the doctrines of grace in a single instant. I was sitting in the house of God one day and, and a thought struck my mind. I think I have mind there. should be mind. How did I come to be converted? Well, I prayed. And then I wondered, well, how did I come to pray? Well, I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. Well, then how came I to read the Scriptures? And then in a moment... I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that He is the author of faith. It was then that the whole doctrine opened up for me from which I have not departed. See, that, that's, that's the argument that um, I think it's J.I. Packer has in his book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Just a really tiny, tiny book. I'd highly recommend it to you. Uh, I think it was, on, it was the book of the month one time. Um, he basically makes that kind of argument. Okay, how did you come to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, I came to read the Scriptures. Well, how, how did you come to read the Scriptures? Well, I just had some thoughts about, you know, and, and you keep going back farther and farther. Well, and and J.I. Packer says, well, what's the difference between you and someone else who does the same thing and doesn't respond in faith? And the point is that, see, at some point we have to say our faith came from somewhere. That there had to be a beginning of our faith. And either it's in ourself or it's in God. Right? If God did it, then God receives the glory. We'll talk about that here in just a second. But, but, if, but if we did it, then we can boast in it to some degree. You know, most of the time, we're not so proud to say something like, 
my salvation was all me, right? Um, most of the time we say it's it's more like the um, the um, what do you call it? The lifesaver, right? Where it's thrown out to me in the water, I grab on, I pull myself in, pull myself up the boat. That we kind of cooperate with God. But what the scriptures teach is that it was all God. That yes, we have to respond, just like Lazarus had to respond. But Lazarus is not going around saying, Did you see what I did? I obeyed that command that Jesus gave me. He's not doing that, is he? He's saying, Jesus brought me life, right? That's what happens in salvation. We don't go around boasting saying, you know, it's a good thing that I went back and studied the Scriptures. I never, if we take Spurgeon's illustration, right, I never would have come to study the Scriptures. I never would have come to pray if God had not first imparted me life. I never would have responded to Jesus' call to come forth if God had not first imparted me life. All right, a lot there. Any questions, comments? All right, next. Salvation is for God's glory according to His own purposes. Glory and own. Salvation is for God's glory according to His own purposes. So, we've concluded that man is enslaved, blind, deceived. And if that's not enough, he, were, he, was, he was dead. According to Scripture, that's what the, what, uh, what the Holy Spirit teaches us. And so we've determined that in only, the only way that a person can come to life is if God does a work. God has to initiate a work of salvation in that person. And God has to complete it because we are sustained by God. But one final question, why does God save us? Why does God save us? And I've already basically summarized that for you there in that answer. But... but when we look at what motivates God to save us, we need to be clear what does not motivate us, motivate God to save us. So turn back to Titus. Verse 3 was our description of where we were. Chapter 3, verse 3. And verse 4, But God did this great work through Jesus Christ, and He saved us. And, and what did He not save us? What was not His motivation for saving us? Verse 5. He saved us not because He was motivated on the basis of our deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. So, what we learn from this verse is that what does not motivate God's saving act is our righteousness. God doesn't look at what we have done and say, wow, that's actually pretty compelling. I think I might be able to do something with that lump of clay. Right? Or I might be able to do something with that dead body. God's not compelled by anything in us. But rather, notice, it's motivated, He is motivated by His love and mercy. But according to His mercy, He saved us. If we're enemies and rebels, if we're dead in our trespasses and sin, what kind of goodness does God see in us? If there is no one righteous, not even one, then what kind of goodness does God see in us in order to save us? And the answer is none. There's nothing good that He sees us and says, you know, compared to that other person, I could really use you. It's not based on anything that we have done. This uh, point becomes clear if you think back to um, 
So, so number one, God's saving action is not motivated by our righteousness. Secondly, God's saving action is not motivated... Um, let's see. Deuteronomy 7. I don't have the... Let's say... It says by His, but I think it should be by our character. Okay, God's saving action... Oh, that's a is. Oh, sorry about that. God's saving action is motivated by His, by His love. Okay, so the second one is by His love. There in Deuteronomy 7, you have God talking to Moses about Israel and saying, listen, the reason that I chose them was not because they were bigger than anyone else. They weren't. Not because they were there's anything special in them, more in number, but because of the Lord's love and because He kept the oath that He had given to, to their forefathers. Remember, Abram was an idol worshiper before God called him. Paul was a persecutor of Christian Christians when God called him. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. And so God's purpose in saving people for Himself was not motivated by our righteousness or some quality that we possess. Motivated by God's love, His choice, simply by His own good pleasure. God's saving action is motivated by His glory. Thirdly, motivated by His glory. First Peter two nine says, "You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of God." In some way, God is receives glory or is ascribed glory that's due to Him when we come to saving faith. And why not? Right? I mean, when, when Lazarus comes to the dead, people don't talk about what a great guy Lazarus is. Man, you are really worth saving, Lazarus. I mean, why would somebody go through that much effort to bring you to life? You must be really valuable in this world. No, they talk about the God who raised him from the dead. What an amazing Jesus to be able to have the power to raise someone from the dead. That's what happens in salvation. The glory doesn't come to us. shouldn't should be deflected to God and say, to God be the glory. Great things He has done. Ephesians 1 is this great passage where you have several times actually talking about each person of the Godhead, that God the Father has done this work of salvation to the praise of His glorious grace, and then God the Son is doing this for the praise of His glorious grace, and God the Spirit, same thing. Deposit has is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. That's why we have that song that we sing uh, often to the praise of His glorious grace. It comes from Ephesians 1. It's one of the reasons that God saved us so that God would be glorified in the saving of us. And then number four, God's saving action is motivated by His good pleasure. Or you could say by His purposes. God's saving action is motivated by His good pleasure. Ephesians 1, 4-5 says um, that God chose us in Him before the creation of the world. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. So ultimately, why does God save us. He saves us for His good pleasure, for His own purposes, according to His grace. So, apart from Christ, we are enslaved and 
and dead in our sins. And yet God initiates and, and completes the work of salvation, right? Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will continue it all the way to the day of Jesus Christ. And His reasons for, reasons for doing so were not based on our righteousness, our choices, or our intrinsic qualities, but according to God's own purposes, God's glory, God's will, God's good pleasure. So what should this do for us? What should a proper understanding of salvation do for us um, that's what we want to look at briefly here next. Any questions on that? Yes, Melissa. Yeah. Yeah, there's still, again, there's still this responsibility that, that we're going to, resp- I mean, there's still this expectation for us to do the repentance and faith. But I would, I would think of it le- just like I think about Lazarus, right? That, that a, a live person is going to respond to the call of his master. You know, the, the real sheep are going to hear Jesus' voice and they're going to follow him. That's the natural thing that sheep do. Or we, Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me see if if this this is a similar question. Can a person to whom God gives life, can he resist God's will? That's the way I, I would ask it. Is that similar to what you're you're asking? Can a person resist the will of God if God gives him life? And I would say absolutely not. Yeah, because I'm not going to want to choose. Romans 8 is I think the clear Yeah. I don't want to choose and I don't even have the ability to do so according to Romans 8, 6, and 7. So I don't even have the ability to do so. If God gets me to the place where I want to choose, then I've already received life. And now I want to respond with... Yeah, and the way that... here, Yeah. Right. So the, the way that the Scriptures talk about it is, you know, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, right? Romans 10, 9, and 10 say... Um, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So, so what we're looking at there, really, I'm talking about in terms of logical steps, right? But when we see in the Scriptures, it's often like we believe and then we're saved. Um, what really happens is this all happens almost instantaneous, in, instantaneously, right? God imparts life, we respond with faith, right? It's It's like... We don't sense it, and the thing is, it's it's like our own birth. Yeah, and and the other thing that we, yeah, and the other thing that we put into it is is the kind of the process, our whole life, like the the amount of time it took. So wait a second, was God kind of like partially imparting me life way back when I was a kid when I started thinking about spiritual things, but then I didn't accept until I was an adult. You know what was going on through all that. And I would just say that that's the Holy Spirit that's starting to do a work of conviction on us throughout time. But there's a one, there's one point in time where we actually have the life. Now, there's lots of things that might lead up to that 
time, but, but there's one point in time where God imparts life to us and that we believe and that we're saved. And all that stuff happens kind of instantaneously that we're saved once for all, but, but our problem is we can't see the work of God until we get past it, usually several years past it, right? It's like our own birth. You know, when we're born, we don't really understand what's going on. We don't even have cognitive really thoughts or able to remember what's happening. But then we go back and say, you know what? My life is not my own. It came from my parents. You know, my parents were responsible for my life. Now that I'm older, I can see that, you know. Um, so, um, no, no, no. No, I appreciate the question. Uh, and can you explain that? Like, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Well, if if we contributed anything to our salvation. Um, yeah. No, no. Um, I'm trying to think of a better way to to explain that. Um, I might have to think on that one a little bit. Um, cause I'm, yeah. No, I understand. And I appreciate the question. So um, let me get to the practical application and, and maybe put some thought to that this week and, and get back to you. All right? Practical, practical application, uh, quickly... Uh, should proper understanding causes us to be humble, first of all. Humble, right? When we recognize that this is where who we were before we came to Christ and now who we are. You know, we're accepted in the Beloved. We're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We're treated as sons. Then it should humble us. Recognize, you know, why did God choose me over that person? Why did I accept Christ? And that this person had the same kind of upbringing. You know, some of you have siblings who had a very similar upbringing to you, and, and you might be asking that similar question. So it should humble us to see that God would be so gracious to us. Secondly, it should cause us to be assured of our salvation. It should cause us to be assured of our salvation. And there's two types of assurance. Both of them are appropriate, but the first is subjective assurance, which is obtained by uh, an upright walk. You know, as we're walking with God, as we're showing love to other believers, as we're eliminating sin, as we're believing the truths about Jesus Christ, then it should assure us that we're in the Beloved because dead people can't believe those things. Dead people don't believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, dead uh, spiritually dead people don't believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and do not give their lives to, the, to Him. Okay, So when we're walking rightly with God, it should assure us of our salvation. The problem is is that we're not always walking rightly with God. And so that even the most mature of Christians can have times of doubt in their salvation. That's when we need to go back to the second type of assurance, which is the objective assurance. That God is the one who did it. 
You know, if we think back to how it was that we were saved and we simply accept the offer of the gospel, I have accepted it, God's promised it, it's going to happen. Right? That's what we need to, to think back to. Remember Ephesians 1 4, but God, but God who is rich in mercy, not but me who happen to, to stumble on this truth and, and follow it. Um, it's not something that, that, um, that ultimately resides in us. Our salvation ultimately resides in God. So we need to be reminded about the objective truths of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and He will do it. Philippians 1, 6, I mentioned earlier, He who began a good work in you will continue it to the day of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, should cause us to be properly motivated for service. If we think that we contributed to our salvation, even in some small sense, then we probably are going to live our Christian lives out of fear. Like, what am I going to do to keep myself from upsetting God so that He eliminates me from His family? But when we recognize that our salvation is all of God, it's not a fear so much as, as a love. Like, God has done this great work on me. I could not have done it myself. I am continuing to to meditate on the great truth of my salvation because of the work that God did. And as a result, I want to give my life to God for good works. In fact, that's what He created us for. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so our whole motivation is not to be good enough to be accepted into heaven, right? God, you have to look at my goodness to accept me. No, my goodness doesn't play into my salvation. My goodness is an effect of my salvation. Christ's goodness plays into my salvation. That's what I'm looking to. And so I'm properly motivated to, to be righteous. Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Alright? Well, I hope this has been helpful for you as you considered your salvation. I... I never tire of, of thinking about these truths about God's grace in our lives and, and I love to continue to look at the Scriptures in that regard and, and I hope that it's been encouragement to you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the work that You did in our salvation. Would You continue all the way till the end so that we will be uh, presented as spotless on the day of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.